Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at a small slice of American writing using the Library of America as my source material. In this episode, I'll be continuing my look at the writings of W.E.B. Du Bois. And um, having finished looking at three of his books, first The Suppression of the Slave Trade, then The Souls of Black Folk, and then finally uh, Dusk at Dawn, we're left with a whole bunch of his essays. Um, and some of his articles from the crisis. So we're going to start with these essays, and these essays are presented in the Library of America in chronological order. Um, we have about 20 of them. I'll, I'll break this up into about three different episodes because some of these are quite lengthy and some of them have a lot to say and tell us. I think collectively these essays do represent a fairly solid anthology of Du Bois' writing and the major issues he was um, dealing with in his, in his career. Uh, we see this change in perspective over time. Um, in many ways, it complements Dusk, Dusk of Dawn very well because that book was autobiographical and it shows his changing philosophy over time. These essays sort of do the same thing. We also have some works that aren't collected in this anthology highlighted. So some are actually chapters of books such as um, Dark Water and Black Reconstruction in America. We have something that hasn't been talked much about in his other writings that we've looked at so far, such as his conflict with Marcus Garvey and his dialogue with black nationalism. We, we've heard a lot about his critique of Booker T. Washington, but not so much about what he had to say about Marcus Garvey, so we'll have a bit of that. We'll have uh, uh, some of his later life writings as well, some of the stuff he wrote in his 90s. So it's going to be a, a, a nice mixture of, of essays, and I think they're a lot of fun. In fact, the first one we have to look at is Jefferson Davis as a representation of, as a representative of civilization. And this was actually his I believe it was his his graduation address from from um, Harvard University in 1890. Um, so why would Du Bois talk about Jefferson Davis's representation of civilization? What does he actually mean by this? And of course, Jefferson Davis, if you don't know, was president of the Confederacy um, during the American Civil War. So he's a, so it's a rather odd subject for his. Um, graduation address. And here's what he said in Dusk of Dawn of this. He said, quote, in 1890, I took my bachelor degree from Harvard and was one of the six commencement speakers, taking as my subject Jefferson Davis. This was a better subject than Bismarck, for he Davis was no hero of mine. Yet the New York Nation said, July 3rd, 1890, that I handled my subject with absolute good taste, great moderation, and almost contemptuous fairness. I was graduated just at the beginning of the term of President Harrison, when the trusts were dominating industry and the McKinley Tariff was making that domination easier. The understanding between the Industrial North and the New South was being perfected, and in 1890, the series of disfranchisement laws began to be enacted in the Southern states, destined to 
de- destined in the next 16 years to make voting by Southern Negroes practically impossible. Um, so that's all he says about it in his autobiography. But what, what does this address actually say? First of all, it's not very long. It's only three essays. I, I think it's included here because it is a significant moment in his life, uh, having graduated from Harvard and getting the chance to give this commencement um, address. And then a bit of the irony of, of the title, it seems, because certainly Du Bois is not someone who would have thought the Old South was a pinnacle of civilization. So is he just being sarcastic? Is he being ironic here? Or is he after something else? And it really comes down to him being a little bit ironic here about the nature of the civilization that Jefferson Davis represents. Now, he doesn't think Jefferson Davis is by nature a cruel or bad person. He, he says, a soldier, a lover, a statesman, a ruler, a passionate, ambitious, and indomitable, bold, reckless guardian of the people's all, judged by the whole standard of Teutonic civilization. There's something noble in the figure of Jefferson Davis and figured by every canon of human justice. There's something fundamentally incomplete about that standard. But he, what he wants to really get at is why is this person who has this set of characteristics which are admirable why does he get put it why is he in this position of defending a civilization based on the principle of keeping people in bondage quote it made a naturally brave and generous man jefferson davis now advancing civilization by murdering indians now hero of a national disgrace called by courtesy the mexican war and finally as the crowning absurdity the peculiar champion of a people's fighting to be free in order that another person should not be free so what does it come down to well the conclusion he comes to is that the civilization that he represents western civilization or he uses the term teutonic civilization in this essay, but in other writings, he'll just call it straight up white or European civilization, is based on a philosophy that demands individualism and personal assertion, and that's judged vis-a-vis the submission of others. So th- this idea of domination and submission is at the heart of, of what he calls here Teutonic civilization, by which we really should mean the entire Western civilization. And the essay as itself goes beyond this and really talks about the dilemma of the New South because the South, based on this this civilization, this Teutonic civilization, is really unable to, to progress, to progress into something new because it's really tied into these habits of thought. And this is something Du Bois talks a lot of in his other writing. Quote, it has thus happened that advance in civilization has always been handicapped by short-sighted national selfishness. The vital principle of division of labor has been stifled not only in industry, but also in civilization, so as to render it nigh impossible for a new race to introduce a new idea into the world, except by means of the cudgel. To say that this nation is in the way of civilization is a contradiction of terms and a system of human culture whose principle is the rise of one race on the ruins of another is a farce and a lie. Yet this is the type of civilization which Jefferson Davis represented. It represents a field for stalwart manhood and heroic character, and at the same time for moral obtuseness and refined brutality. End quote. So the essay is really about Jefferson Davis's nobility and I, and positive attributes, but how they are really representative of, of, of civilization for which those values don't really work for progress or, or moral, more, especially moral progress, but also even straight up economic progress, which of course is, he's, he's talking here in terms that would have been attractive to people thinking about the New South. And the big question of the late 19th, late 19th, early 20th century about the South, in addition to the rise of Jim Crow and the race problem was 
this question of the new south how do we progress how do we bring industry in you know do we get it from the north do we have homegrown capitalists what is our economic system going to be look like well, how are we going to attract capital these are the questions um, that the south was dealing with at the time and Du Bois is kind of talking about both in a parallel form. And he, he ends the, the speech by saying black people can contribute something to the civilization, but they've been denied, denied the chance and denied the opportunity to be part of that. Um, and so that, that's what it is. It's a rather short address. It's just a commencement address, three pages. But I think it's worth taking a glance at to understand some of his early thinking and really some of the kernels of ideas he has later on, particularly in the idea of this burden of uh, kind of the psychological burden of of race and slavery and how they inhibit progress not just for blacks but for whites as well okay next we have the conservation of races which is a rather important essay that needs to be looked at alongside some of the stuff in dusk of dawn and there's another essay we'll look at i think maybe in the next episode called the souls of white folk which is are really his efforts to try to define race and he, essentially he he has different language he uses to define it. Sometimes he talks about race as a cultural or a historical or a sociological phenomenon. In this essay, The Conservation of Race, it's much more kind of in terms of spiritual destiny almost that he, he speaks of race. But for him, race is, is real, but he, he wants to separate. He doesn't want to have the biological definition of race that was common among scientific racists at the end of the 19th century. So this essay was published in the American Negro Academy in their occasional papers in 1897 and he starts just talking about kind of racial diversity across the world and then he tries to come to a definition of race and he says quote what then is a race it is a vast family of human beings generally of common blood and language always of common history traditions and impulses who are both voluntarily and involuntarily striving together on the for the accomplishments of certain more or less vividly conceived ideals of life End quote. So there he, he's kind of setting out a non-biological definition. He does talk about common blood and common language here, but that's not strictly a set of biological characteristics, right? It's a, it, it's, blood is also rooted in historical experiences. So I, I think by talking about blood here, he's, he's not reverting to a biological definition outside of the sense that biology and physical characteristics can impose, can be part of the involuntary aspects of of racial experience. And then he talks about the reality that the world is dividing up itself in terms of races. It, it's These are the most important characteristics. You know, I don't know if it's more important than nation at the time, and I think that's a judgment call. Certainly from Du Bois's point of view, race is more important than nation. But when we look to the 20th century, it's hard to deny the importance of of nation as well. But he, he here takes eight races as the major distinctive races in world history at that moment in time. There are the Slavs, the Teutons, the English, which he includes the Amer white Americans, and there are the Anglo-Saxons, the Romance nations, the Negroes, Semitic people of Western Asia and Northern Africa, Hindus, and then Mongolians. So a lot of, like three of these are actually subsets of, of, of white Europe, and the other five are you know, our larger racial groups. And then he takes on this question, well, how do we define these races? And he talks about 
blood and color and cranial measurements and he just dis- disregards this stuff he doesn't see it as he thinks that's if if they exist it's it's incidental to what is actually a much more spiritual or historical sociological definition but then it comes what the question that he follows us up with is then what is the purpose of these races what is each historical mission of the race you know we sometimes think about nations having these historical agendas and a lot of nationalist history does this right for the america for america it was the frontier maybe for for germany maybe it was national unification you know i don't know for britain maybe it's empire you know each each national history kind of posits a, a national story right and, and in doing so kind of says there's a national mission so what is if if we're living in a world defined by races well what is the mission of each race and he really focuses uh, on black people and what their their mission is and then he does start to list what he thinks the major goals of black people need to be in the coming decades so he does sort of posit a historical mission for them based on this common spiritual cultural and historical experience well first one thing it can't be is the goal of just assimilation into white america quote that if in america it is to be proven for the first time in the modern world that not only negroes are capable of evolving individual men like toussaint the savior but are a nation stored with wonderful possibilities of culture, then their destiny is not a servile imitation of Anglo-Saxon culture, but a stalwart originality which shall unswervingly follow Negro ideals. Right. So, again, it's it's a it's a historical process. Right. It's not biological, but it it then through that historical process has a historical distinctiveness and a certain cultural creativity that's distinctive. And therefore, that gives it a right to exist and and you know and contribute to world history the way he says it is for the development of negro genius of negro literature and art of negro spirit only negroes bound and welded together negroes inspired by one vast ideal can work out in its fullness the great message we have for humanity we cannot reverse history we are subject to the same natural laws as other races and if the negro is ever to be a factor in the world's history if among the gaily colored banners that deck the broad ramps of civilization is to hang one uncompromising com, uncompromising black, then it must be placed there by black hands, fashioned by black hands, and hallowed by the travail of 200 million black hearts beating in one glad song of jubilee. And then from this point on, he, he gets to some more specifics. He, he talks about the American Negro Academy and what they can do for education and what their contribution to this can be, where the focus of study should be, sociological study. And he gives sort of a list of, of things that, if you've been reading Du Bois, you know, they're pretty common to his ideas. You know, the importance of, of insisting on a racial identity and, in a sense, a racial mission. The promotion of a, of, of a talented tenth, I don't think he uses the language of a talented tenth here, but, you know, a kind of a cultural vanguard of sorts. The raising of the political, economic, and religious harmony of black people and, and other things. So he kind of gives a more practical list of, of goals that the American Negro Academy should try to achieve to help be a part of, of this historical this story of of the race as it's developed. So what do we have here in the conservation of races is 
is kind of, I guess the beginning of Du Bois's longer argument about race, focusing on the the not, it's not the saying it's not biological, but rather the product of historical forces. But those same historical forces have given a certain degree of cultural creativity and and a historical mission is there to develop that and cultivate that and contribute that to the world. So they're a part of world history. And for contemporary readers, this is essentially the response you one can give to arguments made by, usually they're made by white people, that who say, well, can't we just be beyond race, right? Like the, these, these historical crimes happen, but why can't we be past them? Well, this is why, right? Because race can be created through historical forces of which people had no choice in making and they're very real and they're still lived. They're, they're part of the sociological structure. So one can be anti-racist and still acknowledge race as a real historical force that's, you know, on top of people, right? And, and part of their lived experiences. Okay, I'll say a little bit less about the next essay because it's a little bit more straightforward. It, it, was, it was a commencement address at Fisk University given in 1898. At this point, Du Bois is a teacher. So this is a year after the conservation of races and a full eight years after the Jefferson Davis essay. So he's back before a graduating class, this time as, as, a, as a teacher. Talking to the new graduates, and the the essay is called "Careers Open to College-Bred Negroes," and it's it's very practical. It's basically a standard commencement address in a lot of ways, in that it's saying, you know, now you're going out in the world, and what are you going to contribute to the world, right? And the, the, you hear this. I've been to many commencement addresses, so I know what they're like, and and in that sense, it's it's kind of typical. But he is talking about a particular burden and a particular um, expectation of this generation of black leaders and what is the historical mission of of, of college-educated blacks at, at the point where Jim Crow is being established and codified in, in the South and race relations are worsening across the nation. And he kind of has a, he starts with a three-part kind of three laws, he, he calls them, three laws of, of basically life. And the first is the law of work, and that is one needs work for survival for one's own income. So that's that's kind of the first layer of consideration when choosing careers out of college is, you know, how do you sustain your material existence? But toil is not enough, right? If that was enough, then no one would need to go to college, right? People would just work in the, in the lumber yards or whatever. So there has to be another level to that. And then he talks about, what's the second one? I want to make sure I have the right order. Yeah, the law of sacrifice is next. And he talks here both about the, the necessity to sacrifice to get this education, right? So beyond, beyond the just work, right? If one chooses not to work, then one chooses to sacrifice oneself to education. Quote, there, this is the law of sacrifice, and we see it everywhere in the fruit we save to ripen in the fields that lie fallow, in the years given to training and education, and in the self-sacrifice of a Socrates, a Darwin, or a David Livingston. So he doesn't say too much about it, but he does say that part of your burden of being college educated is to continue this sacrifice. 
And but then he kind of twists this at the end to the third law, which is it's not straight up sacrifice. There's actually a better word for this almost, and that is the law of service. And there is where there's a broader historical burden and pressure on them. Quote, thus in the civilized world, each serves all and all serve each. And the binding force is faith and skill. And the skill is bounded only by human possibility and genius. And the faith is faithful even to the untrue. Now, by this point in his career, he already has his critique of, of the Atlanta Compromise and this idea that the black people should focus only on vocational education and focus on building up skills and and focus on entrepreneurship and those kinds of, of, of things. He here says there's a great diversity of needs within black America to help this uplift. Everything from farming, and here he really means kind of agricultural science and agricultural specialists, to the professions, to engineers and managers and entrepreneurs. And then much of the rest of the commencement address is simply a listing of kind of the needs out there. That It's almost like a, a help wanted uh, or the, the classified page of a, of a newspaper saying, here's what we need and here's what you have. Here's the jobs open to you and here's what we, we need to progress as as a people now this is a straight up uh, call for these graduates to be leaders of of black america so it is a, a racial document it is, it's not just a general commencement address like you might hear today it's it's really about the needs the necessities of of one group of americans and how leaders from that community can can help achieve that. So it's it's interesting to look at this essay, but it's you know it's not it's really much the kind of call to arms you might hear at a at a, at a standard commencement address, but it's really framed in the struggles of Black America at the end of the 19th century. And you already see here the challenge he's going to lay down for to Booker T. Washington on his with his focus on vocational training. Now, this idea is developed a little bit more in the next essay, which is called The Talented Tenth. It's published in The Negro Problem in 1903. So this is the same year you have uh, The Souls of Black Folk. Interestingly, he never mentions The Talented Tenth in The Souls of Black Folk directly. We, we associate so much with Du Bois's thinking. Um, and usually if you just know a few things about Du Bois, you might know Souls of Black Folk and The Talented Tenth, but he never actually says that phrase as far as I could tell in, in The Souls of Black Folk. It's talked about a lot. He's got two chapters on education, but it's really in this essay where he focuses on this idea of, of the historical pressure burden of this Talented Tenth. Basically, these are the, the best members of, of the race, now let's just start, look at the beginning of this important essay. It, it's rather long, by the way. It's 20 pages or so. We don't have to look at everything to get the main idea. Quote, the Negro race, like all races, is going to be saved by its exceptional men. The problem of education then among Negroes must first of all deal with the talent of the 10th. It is the problem of developing the best of this race, and they may guide the mass away from contamination and death of the worst in their own and other races. Now the training of men is difficult and intricate task. Its technique is a matter for education experts, but its object is for the vision of seers. If we make money the object of man training, we shall develop money makers, not necessarily men. But if we make the technical skills the object of men, we may possess artisans, but not in nature men. 
men we shall have only if we make manhood the object of the work of the schools intelligence broad sympathy knowledge of the world that was and is and in relation to man of it this is the curriculum of that higher education which must underlie true life on this foundation we must build breadwinning skill of hand and quickness of brain with never the fear lest the child and man mistake the means of living for the object of life End quote. Now, this is something he talks about in The Social Black Folk, too, that the, the problem of educating people to just make money, you know, and yeah, people need to make money. That's something. And even he deals with this in the Fisk Commencement Address, you know, making the toil, you know, toil for living is one thing. But some people have this burden of, of service and sacrifice. But then it, at the same time, he wants he wants to be careful here and say, what do we do with this talent at times? We can identify them and educate them, but that's usually not enough. You need to educate them for a purpose. And and I, I think this is something that's that's lacking in a lot of higher education today with this kind of, we're kind of back to this vocational focus. I mean, I'm thinking globally in higher education, where it's this really practical type of education based on how to get a job, right? Or, or what skills are gonna be needed for the economy of the future rather than focusing so much on, you know, on, on thought and moral progress and, and these kinds of, and human, you know, like the humanities, the crisis in humanities is often cited as a conflict between the vocational and, and kind of the liberal arts. And then some people try to defend the liberal arts to say, well, this is the best way to a career, right? Look what philosophers make, you know, they make more than business majors or whatever but it's still kind of focusing on what's the best way to make money rather than the essential needs of of education and i think du bois here is, is onto something in that it's it's not about kind of abstract speculation that that's it, it's not education is good for its own sake there is a, a, a need here to make well-rounded intelligent sympathetic knowledgeable people for their use and that use goes beyond their capacity to make money so there's essentially three parts in this essay the first part is basically about the 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 pre the, the past generation of the talented tenth what they have accomplished already up to this point up to 1903 so there's a little bit of a history to, to, and this is important because this is to prove to his audience both black and white that this talented tenth exists Right. It's not something he's just inventing or it's not wishful thinking that they actually do. They're there. They've always been there. And, you know, it's, it's not something that we, you know, it's and this is important to his racial argument, too, because a lot of the race, white racists and the scientific racists argued that the lack of this talent, the 10th is part of the characteristics of the black race. And that's, of course, something Du Bois wants to challenge right away. And he's going to do this with a, a, a basically a historical argument. Second. He then wants to talk about the actual nuts and bolts of education, the need for black schools and, and teachers and all that. And I don't know how much we want to say about that here. But really, I think the important part of this essay comes in the third part, which is what is then the relationship of the talent the 10th to the quote unquote Negro problem, to the color line? And then what kind of education then beyond money making and beyond straight up skills is going to help prepared that generation of college educated people to address the race problem most directly and most effectively. So in a sense, with the question, what is the use of, of higher education for 
black people beyond the job, beyond the professions? What is the, you know, how can it help solve the, 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 the quote unquote Negro problem? Now, as for the historical part, he, he talks about like black abolitionists. So um, Alexander Crummel, Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass and others. Um, then he looks at the post reconstruction era leaders the the rise of black schools so the historical argument is pretty pretty standard um not too surprising and then he actually gives a whole kind of sociological taxonomy of of what what has happened to college educated black people in the past years what kind of jobs do they take and we actually have a nice little chart here it, it seems most became teachers but there is a, a share a, a, a broad mix throughout the economy some in civil service some in politics agriculture, artisans, editors, lawyers. So a, a big mix. So this is all part of, again, Du Bois's argument to establish that this talent attempt exists. It's been doing things. It's it's not something that needs, it's not hiding. They're not hiding in a cave. They're out there in, in the world right now. So again, it's not something he's inventing. The second part, how to do this? Well, it's, it's the black college and uh, a diversity of educational opportunities for black people is what it comes down to and the importance of, of educating teachers for the future. So it's, you know, it's not um, nothing, no radical proposal here. It's just building up institutions of higher education. And this third point he promised us in the beginning of the essay where he says, you know, what is the relationship of this talented tenth to the quote Negro problem is he doesn't say that much about it directly, actually. And I wonder if it's a little bit elusive in his mind as it might be in, in ours. It basically comes down to uplift, though. And this is how the essay ends. Quote, men of America, the problem is plain before you. Here is a race transplanted through the criminal foolishness of your fathers. Whether you like it or not, the millions are here and here they remain. If you do not lift them up, they will pull you down. Education and work are the levers to uplift a people. Work alone will not do it unless inspired by the right ideals and guided by intelligence. Education must not simply teach work, it must teach life. The talented tenth of the Negro race must be made leaders of thought and missionaries of culture among their people. No others can do this work and Negro colleges must train men for it. The Negro race, like all other races, is going to be saved by its exceptional men." End quote. So, so that's how he ends. It's yeah, it's it's about it's about uplift and leadership. The next essay we have is relatively short. It's called The Negro in Literature and Art, and this was published in 1913 in the Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Science. And certainly we want to think here about the Harlem Renaissance, which Du Bois is going to write about. And we'll look at that in the next um, episode. It's an essay called The Criteria of Negro Art, but it's, you, you know, the I guess the Harlem Renaissance wasn't really cl clear clear yet in 1913. It's not even before the Great Migration. So it's something that, that he talks about in the 20s, but he's already thinking about what is the role of of the artistic class. So if we, if we had in the previous essay, The Talented Tenth, the question of what to do, what about the educated class? What's the role of the professionals? What's the role of the teachers? In this essay, the question is, what is the role of the artist? And in the same way, he, he makes the argument historical first, that black artists and black contributors to American culture and art and literature have always been there. But then the question is, what is the 
how do we cultivate artists and then how do we what's the relationship of artists to the racial problems of of the time now he goes a little bit farther here he goes he even goes beyond the talented tenth argument saying that like he's not saying like 10 percent of us are artists he actually says that quote the negro is primarily an artist so he thinks one of the results of the historical experience of black people particularly slavery um transatlantic migration is this cultural creativity and the argument although he only hints at it here he establishes it elsewhere and other people have talked about this um what's his name um the book's called um blues people leroy jones leroy jones wrote that um where it's it's kind of the cultural holocaust of the slave trade forced black people to be culturally creative rather than just inheriting the culture because their culture was taken from them that that argument is established a little bit in that book and you see it and some historians have talked about this as well and that's partially kind of the subtext here as well but he even goes farther back to to africa and egypt and say this is almost something this cultural creativity is something even brought over from egypt so he's got a bit of the afrocentrist argument in his in his writing already at this point in 1913. And here's how he says it, quote, the Negro blood which flowed in the veins of many of the mightiest of the pharaohs accounts for much of Negro art. And indeed, Egyptian civilization owes much of its origins to the development of the large strain of Negro blood, which manifested itself in every grade of Egyptian society. Another thing he says here is that really the only thing black people could bring from Africa culturally was was music, because that's the thing that could survive in people's minds. It wasn't a craft so much. It was something that could be passed on in more vernacular ways it didn't require an educated class it didn't require a kind of a material foundation of civilization like maybe architecture does or even art pictorial art i mean music is something that could come purely in the mind it didn't require any tools or anything right so he does he makes that point but the first really black artist he can talk about in clear terms is phyllis wheatley the poet but he's got other examples of, of black writers and cultural creators. Uh, Olada Equiano is mentioned here. He even, he even gives credit to Booker T. Washington for his autobiography, Up From Slavery. Um, he talks a little bit about the, ab the black abolitionist writers, too. Uh, Samuel Northrup is mentioned, William Wells Brown. And so he much of this essay is really a taxonomy of of black writers and black artists over time there's he doesn't say as much about black artists because he he kind of sees that more as a vernacular universal among black people but you know he does give this listing of of major black writers up to that point and you know we i i think this is something that charles chestnut dealt with in one of his essays where he he was kind of being advertised as the first black writer or something. And he says, this is nonsense. Of course, I'm not the first black writer. And he mentions Pushkin and and Dumas in France as examples. But Du Bois here gives a much more complete list of the vast number of black writers who were active throughout the 19th century and back even to the 18th century with, with Phyllis Wheatley. Now, he ends with a bit of sadness in that this this kind of great crop of, of lit literature is almost accidental and very unlikely. The way he says it is that these were the few who were let free and allowed to speak. Most black people were not allowed to speak. We're not allowed to be cultural creators. And so that that those ideas and that those that those work of arts have been have been lost to us. 
And so in the same way, he thinks you need to take this talented tenth and set it free through education. The artist needs to similarly be set free. Um, next we have, uh, actually it was, a, it was written in the crisis, but it's pretty long. So it's in this section of the book, uh, written in 1918 called Negro Education. Now this is probably um, not, we don't have to spend too much time on this right now because it's, it's very much a descriptive, it's a piece of investigative journalism describing to the reader um, the successes of, of Negro education, where education is being done, what levels, what different types of schools are available, and you know, basically the successes that have been achieved at, by that point, by 1913. Now, this essay is two things. One is it's a report on, on what's been happening in black um, education, but it's also a response to a, a report produced by the Bureau of Education, a, a two-volume two-volume report uh, published in 1917, uh, prepared by Thomas Jesse Jones. Uh, so he's a specialist in education of racial groups at the Bureau of Education. So that's the, before the Department of Education, there was this Bureau of Education in the federal government. So this is a government report. And it seems that this report had a couple arguments, one of which is, is basically... You know, the government backing the Booker T. Washington approach, that is, don't promote higher education, to work more closely with the white South in terms of education, to really set the terms of what black education should focus on, and essentially don't give up this striving for, for higher education. And then, so the Du Bois's article in The Crisis then is a, is a response to this while reporting on what successes have been made already in and the institutional foundations of higher education. And really, this is an institutional report showing what schools exist, at what levels, how many, how many students are graduating, that kind of, that kind of standard reportage. And it sounds like this Jones report essentially says, because so few blacks are graduating college, they shouldn't even try. Quote, the whole trend of Mr. Jones' study and of his general recommendations is to make the higher training of Negroes practically difficult, if not impossible, despite the fact that his statistics show only 1,643 colored students studying college subjects in all the private Negro schools out of 12,726 pupils. He shows that there are, in proportion to population, 10 times as many whites in the public high schools as there are colored pupils, and only 64 public high schools for Negroes in the whole South. He shows that even at present there are few Negro colleges, and that they have no easy chance for survival. What he is criticizing then is not the fact that Negroes are tumbling into college at enormous numbers, but their wish to go to college and their endeavor to support and maintain even poor college departments, end quote. So he's insisting, so it seems what Jones is saying is because of previous failure, and of course the reason for that failure is slavery, a lack of educational opportunities for hundreds of years, a lack of institutions, and then the racism of the white Southern institutions of education, he doesn't talk about any of that, apparently, but he just says, oh, because blacks aren't graduating in high enough numbers, they should just give up the chance. And that's why Du Bois is a bit confused here. It's like, well, if if black people are sending like all their students to college and only a few are succeeding, then you might have a case for sending too many people to college. But that's not the problem. The problem is we don't have enough people going to college and we don't have enough institutions to provide for the needs of our students. 
Um, and then he breaks it up into different parts. He's got the Negro College, then the public schools, industrial training. Uh, and then he takes on the question of, of to what degree should we cooperate with the white South? And he really insists on the need to have black institutions. And then to what degree should we rely on Northern charity? And so even though Booker T. Washington isn't talked about directly here, and he had died, I think, in 1915. So, you know, I don't think Du Bois is the type of person who would beat a dead horse. Um, it's, you know, he does, he's here, though. I mean, the specters of Booker T. Washington's argument are here. And you can see how long Du Bois had to struggle against this argument. Um, and you see how easily white people in government and in the white South embraced Washington's um, perspective on the, the lack of necessity of, of higher education. So what we have here so far is a, is a series of essays really on education. Um, I, I have one more I want to talk about, but these group together. I mean, with the exception of the conservation of races, you have a set of essays all about education and art and culture in one way or another. And I think they form a pretty coherent argument. The conservation of races is important as well uh, in the sense that it sees race as a historical category rather than a biological one. And that's core to his his insistence on the need for for education, at least among the talented 10th, if not more broadly. The last essay I want to look at today is doesn't really fit into that group quite as well. Uh, now, it's a long essay. It's 40 pages or so. It's also published in the crisis, so I don't. It must have been published serially, I guess. It says it was published in June 1919. No, I guess not. I just looked it up. So it was actually the crisis, 18 June 1919, pages 63 to 87. So you know, I don't know how the crisis was published, how thick it was, um, each issue. But so I guess this was all in one. So it's a long report, and it's called an essay toward a history of the black man in the Great War, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It's it's written in 1919. It's written in this Wilsonian moment at the time when the Versailles Treaty is still being negotiated. So the political agenda here, I think, is to insist on national self-determination, defined by him, I suppose, by the ending of Jim Crow and racial oppression in America. In fact, he talks about Jim Crow directly uh, in this essay several times about black soldiers coming back and having to face Jim Crow. Um, but then he wants to establish and clarify to his readers the contribution of black people to the war effort. And he doesn't talk just about African-Americans. He, he even has a section here on this uh, Senegalese and the large, huge contribution of Africans to to the French war effort. You know, it's something that recent historiography has said more about. Writers on the First World War have said more about these black soldiers from Africa. But it's, it's a relatively recent trend, as I recall. I haven't really kept up on it myself. I just know a little bit about, I mean, I've seen some titles come out from time to time. But, you know, Du Bois was writing about this in 1919. So it's not exactly news that colonial soldiers played a decisive role in the winning of the war. But, you know, if you're interested in it, it's, it's here in this essay. But mostly he's talking about African-Americans, um, some who served as stevedores. He talks about several of the most notable units uh, he talks about black officers, and he gives a few individual examples as well. So basically, it's a survey of the most notable units, the most notable figures, and the work 
that black people did in the war. But we might as well just jump to the conclusion because uh, to, his, to what his argument here is. I mean, mostly it's a, just a taxonomy. So if you want to review these achievements, I mean, the short story is American African-Americans fought bravely in the war. They fought in the front lines. They were a significant part of the war effort. They weren't in a marginal part of it. And, but we come to his conclusion in a section called The End. Uh, quote, a nation with a great disease set out to rescue civilization. It took the disease with it in the virulent form, and that disease of race, hatred, and prejudice hampered its actions and discredited its finest professions. No adequate excuse for American actions can be offered. Grant that there were many of the dismissed and transferred colored officers were incompetent. There is no possible excuse for the persistence and studied harrowing of admittedly competent men to which every black officer testifies with bitterness unexampled in American Negro history. There is no excuse for that persistent refusal to promote Negroes, despite their records testified to even by the French. There is no excuse for systematic refusing Negro officers and soldiers a chance to see something of greater and more beautiful France by curtailing their leaves and quarter them in the back districts. On the other hand, there was not a black soldier, but who was glad he went, glad to fight for France, the only real white democracy, glad to have a new clear vision of the real inner spirit of American prejudice, the day of camouflage is past. This history will be enlarged and expanded, embellished with maps, pictures, and with the aid of an editorial board, blah, blah, blah. Okay, then he just says in the future we'll, we'll say more about this. Um, so there it is. Um, black people were mistreated by the American army. Um, yet, nevertheless, they made a great contribution and were important in the war effort, and they were there in part for ideological reasons. So that's the the whole of his argument in this important essay. I think it's a it's a good one to look at. So, in so that does it for the first hundred pages of these essays by W. E. B. Du Bois. In the next selection, it's it's going to be mostly essays from the nineteen twenties. Um, we'll have a little bit of his Afrocentric thought. We'll have his criticism and his thoughts about the Marcus Garvey movement. Actually, I've got three essays here on that. And then a little bit about the, uh, the Harlem Renaissance. So yeah, it's going to be mostly about stuff in the 19, 1920s. So um, fun stuff. Um, and I'll be back in the next episode looking at those essays. So thank you so much for listening. If you have any of your comments about Du Bois's argument, particularly on education, please leave them below. I'd love to hear what you think. If I missed anything, obviously I missed a lot, or maybe I misinterpreted things. I'm probably wrong about much of this. Please uh, leave your criticisms and comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. So again, thank you for listening and sharing this experience with me. Um, I'll be back next time with some more of W.E.B. Du Bois's essays. The I'm walking through that moonlight. Lay this body down.